Hi, everyone. I'm Anita Lustria, and for many years I did live radio. Then I transitioned to the podcast world where I feel I found my home. I love talking about spiritual formation, justice issues, and spiritual practices. Throw in the Enneagram, movies, and current events from time to time, and that's what you get on the podcast. I'm glad you've come along for the ride. Welcome to Faith Conversations. Welcome to Faith Conversations, everyone. I am really excited to have today's guest as a part of the podcast for the first time. I think I was introduced to her. In fact, I'm pretty sure I was introduced to her by listening to the Pete Enns podcast, The Bible for Normal People. So that was my introduction to Amy Jill Levine. And um, I, she recently has had a, a bit of a change in her biography. And so I'm going to have her help me, tell me about this because a friend just forwarded this article about Hartford Seminary and I had in print Vanderbilt. And I, anyway, so we're going to welcome Amy Jillivine, um, which I am going to try from here on out to call you AJ. AJ, welcome to Faith Conversations. <laughs> Thank you, Anita. So, um, yes. so tell me, yeah, tell me about this, this shift. Um, I had you still at Vanderbilt University, and I guess there's a little piece of that that's true, but get, tell us about what's recently happened. Right. Um, I think one of the, the reasons I like the term Old Testament for the first part of the Christian Bible is because old is fabulous. Um, <laughs> so I, I am at the point now where, you know, like Medicare is available. So in August of this year, 2021, I retired from Vanderbilt University after close to 30 years. Uh, so I am now a university professor of New Testament and Jewish Studies Emerita at Vanderbilt, which means I get to keep library privileges and internet. Um, and I, on August 16th, the day after, I took a new job at what was then Hartford Seminary and is now Hartford International University for Religion and Peace. And my new title, I, have, I keep having to refer to this just to make sure I get it all right, is the Rabbi Stanley M. Kessler Distinguished Professor of New Testament and Jewish Studies. Ah. So in, I'm based in Nashville and every June I will migrate to Connecticut because New England in the springtime and early summer is a very good place to be. Yes, and it I is. I will teach intensive courses, both on site, but I think people can zoom in for these as well. So we'll do it okay. as a hybrid model. Um, Hartford is dedicated to interreligious conversation, Jewish, Christian, and Muslim. And I thought for a couple of years, it might be good to be in that type of environment because I'm very interested in how not only Christians read the New Testament, but I, as a Jew, um, I see things that my Christian students do not always see. They see see things I do not see. And I thought, what would happen if we expand the words of Jesus to include Muslims who revere Jesus as a prophet anyway? Wow. Thank you for all that. And um, I'm super excited about your new post and what uh, that means and what you're able to offer being in that space. Uh, and I'm also here to say yes to New England in the summertime because I'm originally from Maine and uh, now living in Florida and it's just kind of horrific in the summer. So Nashville's pretty humid and hot too. So good for you. And I'm, I'm from Massachusetts, so I get this. Okay. Yes, you do. That's great. Well, we are here today to talk about uh, your latest book, The Difficult Words of Jesus. And I love the subtitle, A Beginner's Guide to His Most Perplexing 
teachings. And before we start, though, I have to ask, because Faith Conversations audience may not be as familiar with you as this is your first time uh, joining me here. Um, I, I, I want to hear the story how you decided to become a New Testament scholar, New Testament professor. Um, you know, in my world, my especially my former world, most uh, New Testament scholars are Christians. And so it's so fascinating for me to have this Jewish woman as this amazing New Testament scholar. And so I guess in, in with that question, I'll add, you know, what is it that drew you to the figure of Jesus? Or was it just the New Testament time period? I, I'm so curious about this. Yeah. And, and our categories are so confusing today. So there are also Messianic Jews who, who do not self-identify as Christian, but as Messianic Jews, um, and among whom are, are actually several very good biblical scholars as well. Um, I, while they are friends of mine, I am not a Messianic Jew because I never felt that call. Um, you know, it, it's not as if I'm actively resisting something. My heart is completely fulfilled with my own Judaism as, as I practice it. And I, I've never felt the call to worship Jesus or, or, or uh, look at the New Testament as, as authoritative for me. But my gosh, is it interesting. Um, I grew up in a neighborhood that was predominantly Portuguese Roman Catholic. So even for Protestant, the first person who registered to me as, as an actual Protestant, I think I went, I met when I went off to college. Um, uh, and I was fascinated by my friends' rituals, uh, by churches, by rosaries, you know, not to mention the bunny and Santa. Um, <laughs> like I still think that Silent Night's a much prettier song than I had a little dreidel. Um, <laughs> and, you know, we would, you know, we would talk about religion. They would go to their church. We all went to public school. So they would talk about what they learned in religious education class. And I would talk about what I learned in the Hebrew school at the synagogue in the next town over. Um, and then one day, this little kid on the school bus said to me, you killed our Lord. And I simply could not fathom how this tradition that my parents had explained to me, you know, we worship the same God, the one who created heaven and earth. We take authority from the same books, like, you know, the Psalms or Isaiah. Um, uh, and that a Jewish man named Jesus was really important to my friends. So how could this tradition that seems so close to what we were doing suddenly turn around and say horrible things about Jews? So I, I was seven then, and I'm now old enough for Medicare. Um, but I started asking questions then, and I've still been asking questions. And what I've realized over the years, two major things. First of all, the New Testament is Jewish history. Jesus is a Jew. Paul is a Jew. All the Marys are Jews. And my gosh, there were a lot of Marys. Yes. Um, it's the most popular Jewish woman's name in the first century. Um, uh, so if I want to know something about my own people's history, the New Testament is a source uh, with which I ought to be familiar. And the other thing that I realized in studying with Christians, and I've been studying with Christians all my life since I was a little kid, um, is that one chooses how to read a text. So you pick up a text and it, it doesn't come as if there's no interpretation involved. You got to figure it out, mm. um, which is why people can still keep getting messages from it 2000 years later. It's not like it's a cookie cutter sort of text. And I realized that people choose how to read. So you can read the New Testament and you can come out as, as hating Jews, or you can read the New Testament and come out as appreciating Jewish tradition and understanding Jesus and Paul within their Jewish background. So when I was younger, I thought if anybody would teach me that mechanism to help people read in a more benevolent and life-affirming um, and ethically responsible manner, I, I want to know how to do that so I can teach other people how to do that. And at the same time, help them from reading the text. This is an old cliche. I didn't come up with it. 
help them from reading the te- from reading the text as a rock to throw rather than a rock on which to stand. Wow. Thank you. I forgot that you're really funny. <laughs> but, you know, if, if, this, if this didn't work, because this is what I had planned on doing since I was seven. That was my career goals. I wanted to teach New Testament. And, and if that didn't work, I was going to go to law school like my mother wanted. <laughs> it seems to have worked. No, no, but I don't, I don't know how much humor you can use standing up in the courtroom, maybe more than I realize. But anyway, <laughs> but you can crazy. use it in the classroom and you can use it when you're right. Thank heaven. Yes, indeed. And and I so appreciate that um, about you, certainly. Well, I, I just want to step back to one um, thing before we get into the content and, and respond to a couple of things that you said. Uh, but but one of the one of the things I wanted to mention was in middle school, my middle school years, I lived in an area heavily populated with Jewish families. And um, I, I, you know, uh, James Martin, Father James mm-hmm. Martin as well. Yep. He and I were from the same place. Oh, my. And, I know. Um, and but I was a Baptist pastor's daughter. He was from a staunch Catholic family. But he and I were talking one day and we got talking about how many bar mitzvahs we were invited to. Mm-hmm. And now you know, it was a really small Baptist church where my dad was. Now I know why my dad took a second part-time job. It was to pay for all the gifts that were needed <laughs> for all of the bar mitzvahs that, that I was invited to. And James said, yeah, it's a wonder I didn't, you know, become Jewish with, and we were laughing about that fact. He's obviously well-known in, in Roman Catholic circles. And I don't know that I'm as well-known, but in Protestant circles. So um, I just think that's all very interesting as well. well I, I think we have envy of other people's religious yes. traditions, right? When I was a kid, I was bound and determined to make my first Holy Communion because <laughs> I wanted the bride dress. There, it, yes. I just wanted all the, I, the gifts, the party stuff, you know, thinking of what I saw at bar mitzvahs. I saw totally. Well, things, things have changed a little bit. Um, for our children, um, when Sarah became bat mitzvah and Alex became bar mitzvah, um, we actually requested of people that they make donations to charitable organizations rather than give the kid, you know, get another fountain pen. Brilliant. Or, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's brilliant. It's not all conspicuous consumption. Well, and I was so was yes, and I was reading in the introduction to your book, and you tell the story. You tell a story about your son Alexander, um, and you gave information that I did not know about bar mitzvah. Um, as I mentioned, you know, I only remembered the big party. I yeah. did not remember uh, how the the young man or young woman stood up in the synagogue and had to explain a passage or, you know, what, what is it that they, that they were doing at that point or that they do? Yeah. Right. So in the synagogue, um, traditionally um, on Sabbath, so Saturday morning, a portion of Torah is being read. um, And it's, it, when you go to a synagogue, if it's an Orthodox synagogue, um, you're going to read the entire Torah in Hebrew or chant it in Hebrew uh, in in an annual cycle. Um, And in the more liberal traditions, it's a three-year cycle, like part A, part B, and part C. Um, Your readers who are on lectionaries will know that, you know, the year of Mark or the year of Matthew, for example. Um, And then, then the child, after doing some of this chanting and perhaps the entire portion, which Alex did, but this was in an Orthodox synagogue, or a partial chapter, and then a rabbi or somebody else will come in and do the rest. You give what's called a Devar Torah. Devar means word and Torah is Torah. So it's a word of Torah and you might think of it as a sermon or a homily or an interpretation. Uh So you say, here's what this text means to me. Um, You might spend some time about what it's meant in the past. So to show you did a little bit of the homework and then you thank everybody who got you to that point. Um, 
and everybody goes, oh, how lovely. I mean, and it's, it's, a, it's an opportunity for the kid, for the child to say, I am now a fully functioning member of this congregation. And I, like anybody else, has the authority, has the privilege uh, of being able to engage in interpretation of this text. Because the rabbi doesn't have the final word. The rabbi is just supposed to know more. Um, and um, you can be as edgy as you want to be. So Alexander's passage was, uh, he, he, I mean, my husband and I are both academics. So, and back back in the day, if you had a baby, you had a baby over the summer because there was no yes. maternity. So you had to you had to time it out pretty well. And my husband is a remarkably accommodating man. Um, so Alex has an August birthday. We missed by one month, um, which means he's in Deuteronomy because we rewind uh, late uh, summer, early fall. Okay. So he gets the passage, you know, go wipe out the Canaanites. Don't let any of them live. And Alex goes, I don't like this passage. I said, you're stuck. I'm sorry, you were born in early August. So um, <clears throat> he said, what do I do? I said, you talk to the rabbi, right? This is your talk, not my talk. Yeah. And okay. the rabbi wisely said, go look at some commentaries. And my son who had been to the Orthodox day school and could read Hebrew quite well, I mean, he started looking at the commentaries. So in his devoratory, his talk, um, he explained how he did not like this passage because in Judaism, if you don't like a passage, you can say so clearly. <laughs> In the same way, you can argue with God. You know, Abraham argues with God. Moses argues with God. Job engages in a 30-chapter fetch, you know, huge argument. Um, and then there are the lament psalms. So he said, I don't like this passage, but I'm very pleased to be a member of a people that allows me to wrestle with it. And then he looked at all the commentaries who tried to say that the passage did not mean what it clearly meant. It's an allegory for wipe out your baser instincts. Uh, you only attack if they're about to attack you and you have no choice. Uh, from the liberals, it never happened anyway because there was no conquest. And that's pretty clear from archeology. span So here's why people develop stories about how strong they are, particularly when they're weak. Um, it reminds us of what we had done in the past and that we all have baggage and we have to overcome it. Uh, the Talmud says you cannot do holy war except for the seven nations of Canaan. And since they don't exist anymore, you can't do holy war anymore. It's limited. And, and, he, and there were a bunch of other Jewish commentators who try to get around the text. And he said, this is what it means to be Israel. To be Israel is to wrestle with God. And the way you wrestle with God is in part you wrestle with that text. And that got me to the difficult sayings of Jesus, because some of these things are just really hard. You have to hate your parents and your spouse. Uh, you know, you get condemned to the outer darkness where there's wailing and gnashing of teeth. There's all that nasty stuff, stuff about the Jews in the Gospel of John, you know, sell all you have and give to the poor. So what do you do instead of saying, well, I'm going to ignore this one because it's too hard, because that's irresponsible. And instead of saying, well, that was then and this is now, because then it's saying the text has no meaning for us. Mm. Um, you, you engage and you try to figure out from other things that you know about Jesus and other things you know about his Jewish context, what those words might have meant to an original audience. And you see how they've been interpreted over time. And then you take your place as a reader of the text, because just as in Judaism, you should not give up your personal ability to read a text and say, well, you know, whatever the rabbi says. So in the church, you should not become sheep and say, oh, well, pastor says this, and that's the end of it, excuse me. Um, career aspirations for Christians ought to be higher than being a sheep. Well, oh yes, okay, thank you for that. But I'm here to say that in, that, in the stream of evangelicalism that I was raised in, not, I'm not in that space so much today, but it very much was a stream where whatever came out of the pastor's mouth, whatever came out of the Bible scholar's mouth, 
um, boom, that's the interpretation. You just sit with that. And so it is uh, something that I love hearing about and learning about in the Jewish tradition about wrestling with the text, something that I do now, but was not taught to do. And I went to Bible college and like was not taught, you know, and so it's really distressing for me to think back, but you know what? No, just move forward. I keep moving forward. And the sad thing is that if you study the Bible and studying the Bible means not starting with Matthew, but starting with Genesis, um, you see that wrestling all the way through. In fact, you see Jesus wrestling with God, you know, let this cut pass from me, not thrilled with this idea. Right. Um, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22 is a lament Psalm. Lament Psalms are wrestling with God. Right? Yes. Um, so if Jesus sets the model, and, and one of the really, really cool things about Jesus, like I said, I don't worship him, but boy, he's splendid, um, is um, he doesn't ask his followers to do what he himself will not do. So he mm-hmm. provides the model. So if he can wrestle with God, um, if he can have a conversation with a, a woman from, from Syrophoenicia, and, and have a discussion about whether he's going to heal her daughter or not. Right. Well, you know, he provides the model. Yeah, you engage and you discuss and you actually have a learning curve. I love that so much. You push back, you argue. You, I mean, I just, I so appreciate this. Um, and so your book, I mean, you're talking about some of the hard uh, words, hard sayings of Jesus. I mean, the whole, the title is The Difficult Words of Jesus. So how did you pick these particular difficult words? And I know there are some others that are tossed in there as well as just yeah. the main chapters, but well, yeah. we got 16 chapters. And then, cause I wanted to do more, there's, you know, I, I don't get in sort of like getting a little, you know, ex- extra appetizer at, at the fancy yeah. restaurant. Um, <laughs> cause these are the questions with which my students and, and my primary job is to teach new Testament. So these are the questions that my students have asked. Uh, people email me all the time, and these are questions they write to me, and, and I used to spend hours responding on email, and I, th- I thought, finally, maybe if I write a book, I can just Thank think you. a book. There it's it's a better use of my time in the yes. long run. Um, so I picked the ones that, that are the most, that I find to be the most difficult um, and that my, my students and my friends and, and people who write to me find to be the most difficult. But the Bible I mean, from Genesis on is filled with difficult stuff. Well, um, can I, can I quote you here? Yeah. Just interrupt and quote you. I love this quote um, in, in the introduction. Um, I listened to your book on audio and then read portions of it. My husband is reading the physical copy now. And he also underlined this, you know, believing that a text is divinely inspired should not mean parking our moral compass at Genesis one and only picking it back up at the end of revelation. You know, you're just basically happy with that. Yes, you should. That's a great, that's a great sentence. I love that. Oh my goodness. Um, You know, one of my questions too, as we dig into some of these um, difficult words of Jesus, um, how, how do Jews generally view the New Testament? Um, a sacred text or not? You know, what I, I'm curious about that as well. Right. Well, unless we're talking about the Messianic community, I mean, and I'm, we look at the New Testament kind of like the way Christians would look at the Quran uh, or the Bhagavad okay. Gita. It, okay. it has no okay. authority for us whatsoever. Um, and even though it's uh, writ- written in part by Jews, like Paul, who's clearly a Jew, um, and it's written about Jews. Uh, it's it hasn't come into Jewish history as anything that's authoritative. So in that sense, comparable, for example, to the Dead Sea Scrolls, okay. also written by Jews and about Jews, but no authority for the ongoing Jewish community. 
Okay. That's, thank you. I, I wondered about that too. Yeah. She's, she, we don't know. Um, for people in my generation, we were um, discouraged from reading the New Testament. Mm-hmm. I had an aunt who said to me when I first started doing this, you know, why are you reading that hateful anti-Semitic book? And I said, have you ever read it? And she said, no, why would I read that? You know, uh, it, so that kind of ignorance is not particularly helpful. Today, we have lots and lots of Jews who have become students of Second Temple Judaism, the time of Jesus, and even students of the New Testament. Um, uh, I co-edited with Mark Brettler, who teaches, a good friend who teaches at Duke, um, a book called The Jewish Annotated New Testament, published by Oxford University Press, now out by gosh, in its second edition. Um, nice. and. And we have every single book in the New Testament is annotated by Jews and not Messianic Jews, but Jews. And then there were like, you know, 30 plus back essays on who were the Pharisees and what was the temple and what was the life of Jewish women like at the time, Judaism and gender. Um, what was the calendar? How did people follow the law and so on? And that's a major reclamation of Christian, you can use the, the word Christian, that would be anachronistic. Paul doesn't even know the word Christian, and Jesus certainly didn't. Right. Um, but this kind of Christian origins or Jesus movement um, as part of Jewish history. Hmm. That's, that's helpful. So all with some of those questions answered, and, I, and of course, I'll have more along the way, but let's, let's dive into, uh, I don't know if I say what, what's a favorite <laughs> difficult word <laughs> of yours, but, you know, where, where would you like to, to start? Um, I, pe- pe- I, I will say this, I, I've actually had not arguments, but I've had women before um, when the passage, sell what you own comes up, you know, yeah. uh, let's skip this. Let's yeah. skip this, like afraid of what it might <laughs> cost them, if you will. As it were. Yeah. (laughs) The favorite response I got for, and and, uh, the press suggested this might not be appropriate for the book, um, (laughs) is one woman who says, um, it is easier for a rich, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to get into the kingdom of heaven. And she responded, but it doesn't say anything about women. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. Okay. Moving on. Yeah. No. So (laughs) what? Yeah, let's let's talk about that. What what does this really mean, or what is the background that you bring to the table that helps us see a deeper meaning here? Um, Jesus is not a cookie cutter teacher. There are certain teachings that are appropriate for one person, but not for another. The disciples uh, say they've left everything, although I think Peter kept the house at Capernaum. Um, it, it, uh, Mary and Martha are not told to divest because people he needs to have places where other people can stay. I think Mary and Martha epitomize an early house church with Martha engaged in, in much diaconing, much, much deaconing service. Um, but there's a possibility uh, in the first century, first century Judaism, for people to, in effect, divest of everything. And that's what the folks who went out to the Dead Sea did. Uh, Josephus, our first century historian, talks about studying with a wilderness wilderness prophet whose name is Banus, um, who looks like a, an early version of a, an, an ascetic monk. Um, there was a, a, a swath of celibacy going through at the time. So later on, the more the church talked about celibacy and virginity and continence, the more the rabbi said, get married, make babies. Yeah. Why, why didn't the Catholics uh, catch that? Catholics got both. Catholics actually got it right because they made both taking holy orders and marriage sacraments. 
Okay. Now, granted, they said if you if you took holy orders, it, it had the sense of perhaps being a little bit better. But they actually enfranchised both, and that's a good thing, because not everybody feels called toward marriage. Right. Um, I agree. Yeah. Right. And in certain gender roles where marriage had to be heterosexual, other options are probably a good thing. Um, so because of this, and because Jesus is teaching his followers to live in effect as if they've already got one foot in the kingdom of heaven. Well, the easiest way to do that is if you have no earthly responsibilities. Um, so he's saying, if you want to be, if you want to be perfect, um, you, this particular individual, not other people, they have different ways of being perfect. You want to be perfect. Why? Because the one thing that's holding you back is your money. And when he has this conversation, we call this fellow the rich young ruler because he's rich in one text and young in another and a ruler in another. I think that young means not married, no children. Okay. All right. Um, so he's got none of these responsibilities. And, and he, Jesus and this fellow, and Mark says Jesus loved this fellow, even though he didn't sign on. I think that's a great move, right? You might not be, yeah. there, there's still hope for this guy. Um, uh, he, when they start talking about the Ten Commandments, they add in one that's not there. They talk about not defrauding. And while one is not supposed to defraud, that's not one of the top 10. And that raises the question about for this young man, where did he get his money in the first place? Hmm. So we think we might think about today trust fund babies or people who inherit privilege. You know, where (laughs) did you get your resources and how is it that other people don't have those same resources? And in what might be a zero sum economy, if you have more, that's because somebody else has less. So what Jesus is doing for this man who's feeling like there's still something missing in his life, even though he's doing everything right, there's still something missing. Mm-hmm. Is he saying, have you thought about where your today we would talk about privilege? Have you thought yes. about where your privilege comes from? And do you have that ability um, to use the British expression, mind the gap? Can you see the gap between the haves like you and the have nots? And is that what's causing your problem? So if you really want to do away with this problem, because you're beginning to recognize what causes that gap, you, sir, Mm -hmm. you go sell all you have and give to the poor and you come follow me because that's your problem. Mm. Other people will have different problems. Which two things. One, I love, you said, you know, Jesus still loves this guy, still hope for him. And I, I wrote down, or we're called to love everyone, whether they sign on to our way of believing Absolutely. or not or, what, or in fact whether they do the right thing or not yes right, right? we're all in the image and likeness uh, of god and yeah. and if we can't find and this is really hard nobody says it was going to be easy but if you cannot find the image of god in somebody whom you would despise uh think about the politician for whom you would never <laughs> ever vote um or a relative um or uh, a political figure from the past uh, who comes down into history in a negative way. So you have to be able to see the image and likeness of God in that person too. Yeah. Wow. Let's just, uh, let me hit pause on the recording. That's <laughs> it with that one. Right. So, uh, it reminds me, uh, you talking about how, you know, this is the issue for this young man, this rich young ruler. Um, it reminds me of, um, like today I'm, an Enneagram trainer, but there are other things out there, Myers-Briggs, whatever. We are all, we all have a different kind of profile, all have different things that are, you know, underlying motives for us. And so, yeah, so Jesus is not going to necessarily say the same things to all of us because we, we're all just a little bit different. That hot button issue for us is going to be different. 
Right. Um, the Bible has always appreciated that. I mean, I, the, the individual characters that we have throughout the Bible all have their distinct traits. Uh, Paul talk, Paul in 1 Corinthians talks about how people are called for different things, right? Not everybody's supposed to be a teacher. James says you might not want to be. It's hard and you're responsible. Some people are healers. Some people are prophets. Um, some people are donors. Uh, we're all different parts of the same body and we all have a role to play. Um, and it also means that if one part of the body is hurting, then you have to pay attention to it. You know, at that point, uh, you know, the big toe matters or the forearm matters. Um, so you all work together, but you all have different gifts with which to do it. And you're all called to, to quite different things. Yes. The major call remains the same. Love God, love neighbor. That doesn't go away. But how you do it, that may differ depending upon where you are and when, what your talents are. That's the tagline for my church. Love God, love neighbor. I, That's nice. I, I appreciate I like it a lot. I, yeah. Um, I, I, let me just interject this question. What What is your favorite translation of, of the Bible, Mine. New Testament even, but Mine. the Bible? Mine. Uh, yours? Mine. Oh, I like, thank no, you. As a, I'm a Bible That's scholar. Great. So you go to the Hebrew and you go to the Greek and, the, and then you look at the textual <laughs> variants because there's no original copy of anything. So- as soon as we're reading an English translation, the layers of interpretation that went into that English translation, that's already a problem. Um, we're about to see a new, new revised standard version. I don't know oh, what they're really? going to call it. Um, oh, I'm editing a Bible series now for, for Oxford University Press, where we're asking our editor, our contributors to do new translations of their own and then explain. I mean, translation matters in a variety of different ways. So I'm happy to use the NRSV because it's gender inclusive. So it's not a, it, it doesn't pull you away as, as, as some texts do. Um, some of the less gender inclusive students uh, translations, particularly for my women students are alienating. Uh -huh. uh, for, um, for Jews, you know, the Jewish Publication Society is fine. But I, I really like going back to the original. And, and the thing is you don't have to be a Bible scholar and you don't have to know Greek and Hebrew to do this. All you need is a decent commentary. Uh, that tells you here are other ways of interpreting this text. Here are other ways of translating this text. Oh man, I, I that thank you. Number one, I'm laughing because I'm thinking who what, who was I asking that question to? Of course, your translation. I love that response. <laughs> I don't know what I was thinking, but there was something that I underlined oh, earlier on about um, discipleship. Oh, this was interesting to me. Uh, and of course, I'm not going to find it. I must not have written it down. But, but talking about, you said something about the discipleship of in the past, and maybe you were talking about the the disciples. But which my husband loved the line about that you wrote about the disciples were not the brightest bulbs students in the seminar. Students in the seminar, in the seminar. <laughs> I love that. Um, but I'm just thinking of even the the Christian church today. I just feel like discipleship is really missing and that, that books like what you're writing and but are, are so important, but I don't know that people are pointed toward them or encouraged to read them or have a desire to, to dig deeper. I don't know. What, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, thanks for that. Um, I, I don't think people have a desire to dig. I think people, in fact, want to be sheep because uh, it's easy. Right. I, it, life is hard enough so that when you walk into church on Sunday morning, just just tell me what to do so I can do it. Um, but that's too hard, too, because then I have to do it. So yeah. Ooh, how do you yeah, make okay. it easier? Tell me what to believe. And all I have to do is believe it. And if I really don't believe it, I'm going to say I believe it anyway, because it looks good. <laughs> right. 
Um, so just tell me I have to worship Jesus as Lord and Savior. All I have to do is get baptized once and I get that taken care of. So I've got self, I've got the to-do list of salvation. Affirm Jesus as Lord and Savior, get baptized, you know, maybe join a church. I've got that all checked off, and now I can go be a sheep. Um, and and it reduces the gospel uh to a faith statement. Uh, and, and and that would be inappropriate because if that's where all that it is, you'd start with the crucifixion narrative. You wouldn't need, you know, things like the Sermon on the Mount, and you wouldn't need these difficult sayings that just, you know, why why would we have just just have mm. Jesus die and that takes care of it. Um, and and I, I think that's talk about the cost of discipleship, to use your language, it's selling the gospel short. It's mm. really selling it short. Um because the gospel, like the Jewish community from which Jesus comes and, and, and within which he lived, and, and like the scriptures of Israel, this is a lifestyle. It's not just a belief system. Um, so, yeah. And it's not just a series of rules. Again, it is a lifestyle. Yeah. And, and what these difficult sayings do is help us with that particular lifestyle by helping us with questions of priority. Um, if, you, if you need a touchstone, what's more important and what's less important? And when you have to make choices, what these difficult sayings do is provide certain guidelines or certain cues, because I think that in part what the Bible is doing, and this is Genesis on, not just Matthew on, is it, help, it helps us discern, it helps us ask the right questions, um, it tells us that our actions matter. Uh, the epistle of James, great epistle, by the way, um, says faith without works is dead. I want that on, in, you know, I want that <laughs> on church buildings and build, I want that everywhere. Mm. Um, and then when my Protestant friends, particularly my evangelical friends, get all squirrely about works, I'm trying to earn disciples. No, <laughs> it's, it's totally wrong. Um, the reason Jews follow Torah, and we debate about it, too, because it's not as if it comes with a, a, a driver's ed manual, <laughs> um, is because uh, we, we are responding to the gift that God gave us by giving us the Torah in the first place. Mm. We're not trying to earn God's love. We're not trying to earn a place into heaven any more than kids who do what their parents want are trying to earn the parents' love um, or a place in the family. They've already got that presuming mm. healthy family dynamics. Right. Um, you do that because you love mommy and daddy and you know that mommy and daddy want the best for you. Mm. And every once in a while, you might argue with mommy and daddy. Well, that's fine. Every once in a while, I'm going to argue with God. Yeah. Oh. Okay, I have to ask. You're so funny. You're you use humor so well, beautifully in your writing, and obviously here in, um, you know, just in, in conversation. Um, I think sometimes, and I don't want to get us off track, but I'm going to with this question. We don't think uh, there's humor in scripture that Jesus didn't use humor. Yeah, right. Because you have <laughs> Jesus wept in John 11, but you don't have Jesus laughed. Actually, Jesus laughs, but in non-canonical texts. I think he laughs in the Acts of John. But that didn't make the cut. Um, it, it, the Bible is substantially funny. Um, it's certainly entertaining. I mean, Acts, the book of Acts, is parts of it are just really funny. You know, it, Peter sleepwalks his way out of a jailbreak. I mean, I, that's just hysterical. Um, so uh, it, the Bible was not written only to instruct. It, it was also written to entertain. Um, uh, there's a, there's a, a, a Latin satirist named Horace. Um, who, who talks about what he calls profit with the light, profit, P-R-O-F-I-T, right? And, and what he says is, if you can get people laughing along with you, you're more likely to get them to pay attention to you, which is why, in fact, um, that pastors and priests who give sermons or homilies 
at some point in that homily, and I don't care if it's a five-minute one from, from a, an overtired Roman Catholic priest or a 40-minute one from a Lutheran on the roll, there's <laughs> going to be some sort of funny anecdote there. You're right. You're so right. That's Why so are they doing that? Because you want the congregation on your side. You want yeah. to relax them uh, before you say, and by the way, you know, you have to up your before donation. The- yeah, yeah, up your donate yeah. before the up zinger. <laughs> the soup kitchen needs somebody to come in on That's Tuesday. Uh, you're not being nice to the person in the pew next to you, and somebody's got to do the cleaning after the service. Oh, so, uh, so there's always going to be a little bit of humor. I think the parables are some of them are yeah. substantially funny. Yeah. You know, mustard trees do not grow. Mustard seeds do not grow into giant trees. They grow into these, you know, five foot tall at most bushes. I mean, the whole thing is just weird. Um, <laughs> Or a woman who hides hides dough, not even mix hides dough in sixty measure in, in 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 three measures of flour. That's sixty pounds. I mean, the whole thing is just weird. Um, so what Jesus is doing is he's he's sparking people's imagination, mm. and he's going to use all the available storyteller mm. and pedagogical tricks that are available to do it, which makes him a splendid teacher. Which is also why we need to study this because we miss it because we don't know the scripture. Right to study yeah. it and to study it in groups. Yes, uh, because Judaism is a very communal thing. Um, so when you interpret it, you don't just go off in your study and do it. That's you can start there. But it, Jesus makes in the good Jewish Jesus, right? Where two or three are gathered. You can have if, if you go off on your own, you might go off the deep end. So make sure that you study in community, because if you're working with people with whom you respect and even better, if you're working with people who are likely to disagree with you, you're in a better sense of being able to hone an argument. That's so good. All right. On that note, let's, let's move to uh, another one of these difficult words of Jesus, your pick. Oh, I like them all. Um, (laughs) I, 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 I'm intrigued by all this fear about hell, about, you know, you are condemned to the outer darkness with a wailing and gnashing. I I wanted to hear about this. Yes. Good. It sounds like a dentist office without Novocaine, you know, what's hell like? Or or with Novocaine even. Yeah. Okay. Um, I, well, first century Judaism had a variety of views about heaven and hell. And here's one of those distinctions between what the church did with such concerns, these afterlife concerns, and what the synagogue did with such afterlife concerns. So in the same way the church started to push virginity and celibacy and continence, the church also started to push this heaven and hell thing. Um, you can really see that clearly in in, uh, in Dante, right, the divine comedy. Right. Um, so the Inferno, which is great. This is like the best literature ever. You have somebody you don't like. So you write a book about hell and then you put the people you don't like in hell and describe their tortures. What a marvelous way of <laughs> dealing with your feelings. And you get published and it goes on forever. Um, so the more the church talked about hell, the more the synagogue said, you know what? The afterlife, that's God's issue. Our job is not to talk about salvation, like what happens to you after you die. Um, it's much more to talk about sanctification in this world. How do you live out the life that God wants you to live? And you don't do it out of fear of hell because that makes God into a bully, right? I'm doing the right thing because I'm afraid I'm going to get zapped, right? Not helpful. Which, which I'm telling you, I heard that so many times growing up, really that, that the overlay of that, that caused me to think that way. Yeah. Right. Religion is supposed to be about love. It is not supposed to be about fear, right? God is love. That's first John. It's not God is a bully. Yes. Um, and the Old Testament, to use Christian terminology, does not have a real strong sense of heaven and hell. That begins to come in relatively late on, under, under Persian and then Greek influence. So in the first century, it's there. Uh, 
Um, and here I'm picking up some stuff from, from my friend, Bart Ehrman, who has a very nice blog on biblical studies. He teaches at UNC Chapel Hill. Um, and Bart has made the argument that substantially for Jesus, and you can find this elsewhere in Jewish texts, he's not the only one to make this argument, um, that when you talk about being thrown into the unquenchable fire, and the Greek term for that, by the way, is asbestos. That's where we get the term. That's pretty cool. <laughs> no kidding. Um, yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, th it doesn't mean you burn forever. Um, because once you're thrown into the unquenchable fire, you burn up. That's it. You are done. Um, the book of Daniel, uh, written about 150 years before Jesus, um, talks about the righteous shining like stars in heaven, which may actually mean you get to be stars. It's kind of like, you know, you die and you become like Tinkerbell um, in Peter Pan. <laughs> you shine and you glitter. Um, that's probably, by the way, the star of Bethlehem. That's not a real star, because if a star stops over a house, the house is going to be incinerated. Um, so, you know, it, it has to be some sort of sentient being mm. who's guiding these men. never thought about that. That's well, so interesting. Christmas cards with the star directly over the house, right. and you're thinking, really? Just basic laws of physics have, have not been abrogated. Yeah, I haven't looked into those basic laws of physics, so thanks for coming on the podcast. Okay, that's very okay. good. It's, it's, you know, it's October, we're gearing up toward Christmas. Yes, right. Um, uh, but it, but but there's not the, the, the bad people or the people of bad people is probably the wrong word. The people who have done evil things and have not repented of them. Um, there's just nothing for them. It's oblivion. Um, so what this, what these various texts regarding hell or damnation, or whatever, um, I think they're very helpful in terms of thinking not only about how do I deal with people who have done bad things, but what do mm. I want to see happen to them? Mm. And if, and you know, it's like the old two wrongs don't make a right. If, if I'm wishing hellfire on somebody who's in the image and likeness of God, what does that say about me? And at the right. same time, I can think um, maybe if I can't bring about justice, if this person who has done really, really heinous things lives to a ripe old age and dies, you know, in, in, a, in a beautiful four poster bed with decent medication, where's the justice? <sighs> So this language of hell can help me deal with that, um, which is why, to some extent, even the book of Revelation, which is pretty violent, at least it suggests that within the, the, the cosmic sphere, that God knows that this is unjust. But the question of punishment is not in my hands, because I don't have the capacity to know everything that went into contributing to this person's evil deeds. Right. But God does, and God will take care of it. So some of this language tells me that there is justice. And, and here I am relieved from the duty of saying who is saved and who is damned, because mm -hmm. that is not my call. You can preach that message all day. That's one that's really needed. <laughs> that's so anybody, good. Anybody who's ever served on a jury knows this if, when yes. you get to questions of sentencing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you say, I've spent, I've spent over 20 years um, and until COVID when we had to stop uh, working in a maximum security prison here in Nashville, Riverbend really? Maximum Security Institute. Um, and I work with men who, and this is maximum security, so men who are convicted of murder right. and child abuse and yep. rape and so on. Um, and, you know, you can have this abstract notion of what these crimes are and, and what, the, what the solution to them is. But these men are also my friends and they are in the image and likeness of God. And they have done horrible things. I don't want to be in the position of sentencing them. Mm. And, and, you know, what does the sentence mean that you go into prison, you did something heinous while you were on drugs when you were 19 and you're now 60. Oh, yeah. 
Yes. And, and what has changed with you? And are you still, quote unquote, a danger to society? What this language in the Bible of final judgment in heaven and hell does is say, this is stuff you need to think about. Yes. Because you need to think about the punishments that, that we um, that we engage in on earth. And we need to think about what we want to see happen to these people. And where does repentance come in? And what happens when repentance doesn't come? Mm. And is that a fault? Or is that just a sociopath who actually doesn't have the capacity to repent? This is hard stuff, but the Bible raises the question. And these are the good questions we should be talking about. Wow. So good. I highly commend to you Amy Jill Levine's book, The Difficult Words of Jesus. I also made note, we are coming up toward Advent. You've written um, Light of the World, A Beginner's Guide to Advent also. Okay, somebody should, yeah. <laughs> Thank you very much. And uh, what's next for you? What are you working on now? Um, the one that we, ju we, I, we just sent into press, it's with the editors, is called um, Witness at the Cross. It's a beginner's guide to Holy Friday. Oh, so wow. instead of doing the, the seven last words, in fact, there are more than seven last words because Jesus, you know, if you go through the Gospels, he's actually pretty chatty, um, it is to look at um, who's there and what do we learn from them? Mm. Uh, what do we learn from the so-called bystanders? And are there any innocent bystanders, the ones who mock him, mm. uh, the chief priests and the scribes who mock him? Mm. Uh, how do we understand only in the Gospel of Luke, where he says to one of the two who are dying with him, um, today you will begin, you will be with me in paradise? Or what does it mean in Luke when he says, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing? Mm. How do we understand the relationship uh, among Jesus, his beloved disciple, uh, and the mother of Jesus? She's never called Mary in the Gospel of John. Yeah. Who are the other women who were there? What about the soldiers? What about the centurion? How wow. about Simon of Cyrene? And who else is there? Because God is there, and the yes. Holy Spirit is there. So we the didn't even talk about the Holy Spirit. That's going to have to be another day. <laughs> yeah. So uh, the fiction narrative is actually highly populated. And we wow. learn different things when we look at Jesus from the perspective of all these different witnesses. What are they seeing? What are they hearing? How are they interacting with Jesus? Um, and what do we learn from them? Mm. Well, looking forward to that as well. In the meantime, The Difficult Words of Jesus is out and available. And I'm going to post um, Amy Jill Levine's um, website on the show notes. Uh, I know you go out and do a lot of speaking Yep. And uh, at churches, I'm thinking of my church, it would be so interesting. We do a community speakers series thing. And anyway, uh, but uh, any of you, I'll post information and you can if learn more. If you're in Florida and it's wintertime, I'm, I'm a you're very there, right? Yeah. <laughs> Amy Jill Levine, what a delight to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. What wonderful questions. I want to talk with you again. I feel like we've now become friends. This I'm, is I'm with you. Thank you. And to everyone else, as always, I say, keep the conversation going. Amen. Amen.